Welcome to My Safety Tech Podcast with me, your host, Pete Thomas. In this interview, I speak to Emily Harbottle, a founder and partner with RiskFlag. Emily was a pilot in the Army, and it was during this time that she worked with safety cases. Since the release of the Building Safety Act, Emily has transferred all of her knowledge of safety cases to high-rise buildings. Emily and the team at RiskFlag have created a software solution to help build and manage safety case reports. So I spent 16 years in the British Army. I flew helicopters and I was an instructor at the Defence Helicopter Flying School. But my last two years, I what else did I do? I taught at Sandhurst, so Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. I was an instructor for two years. And I also worked for my last two years at the Military Aviation Authority, which was the Defence Aviation Regulator. So tri-service regulator for all of Defence Aviation, all three services. I could go into how that came about, if you've got time. Yeah, absolutely, we've got time. Go ahead. Okay, in 2000 and uh, I'm going to get the dates wrong, 2006, I think it was, the uh, there was a Nimrod accident. So a Nimrod, which is a survey type of um, surveillance aircraft, RAF, flying over Afghanistan, suffered a, uh, there was a fire in one of the bomb bays and they were unable to extinguish the fire and the aircraft despite all their best efforts to get the aircraft down to to deal with the the incident they crew were unable very tragically to resolve it and the aircraft exploded in midair killing all 14 service personnel on board now it was a tragedy in many ways one of which is because it was essentially an avoidable accident the aircraft, there were known faults with the aircraft. There were decisions that had been made years and years and years before that then had an impact, a safety impact in that scenario in which they were not able to extinguish the fire in the Bombay, essentially. The the government, they initiated a review. So Sir, Ch- Sir Child, Charles, I can't say it, Haddon Cave, conducted what is known as the Nimrod Review very similar to Judith Hackett's review into Grenfell. And he recommended lots of recommendations, but two of the key recommendations were, one, that an independent regulator should be established and that a new safety case regime be implemented. So the in 2009, the Military Aviation Authority was stood up as a result directly from Sir Charles Haddon Cave's review of how safety was managed in defence aviation, which he wasn't very complimentary about. It is very much a parallel journey that the building industry is going on. And as I said previously, I think tragically it was 72 people at Grenfell that lost their lives to precipitate a similar change in approach. I mean, it's not that the defence aviation didn't do things safely, that would be very unfair. It was the processes by which they managed and understood safety is what he was really getting at. And in fact, he said that there should be a risk case, not a safety case, which I thought was quite interesting, because he's saying you're arguing, if you argue for the safety of something, a system, or in this case, uh, an aircraft or a building, you are almost biased towards saying it's safe 
from the outset rather than justifying why the risks are uh, acceptable. But they went with safety case. I mean, it's the same principle. But yeah, it did change very much how defence looks at safety and how, especially from the perspective of accountability. So they put in a, a duty holder regime and there are three layers of duty holder. So there's your senior duty holder, your operating duty holder and your delivery duty holder from that's like from the most senior down to the, the lower levels. And depending on the level of risk that dictates, also the level of risk dictates who holds the risk. So which at which level the duty holder is required to say, this is an acceptable risk to me. Or in fact, the words they use are that the risk is as low as reasonably practicable and tolerable. So there's and that's not something I've seen in the, the building legislation is this concept of a LARP and tolerable, because then whilst they're saying the PAP has to declare that all reasonable steps have been taken, they're not saying, I mean, I think it is sort of implicit, but they're not explicitly demanding that the principal accountable person say everything has been done to mitigate the risks within this building and those risks I personally am willing to tolerate those risks, which is what the constructing defence is. And I don't know if you have a view on that, on um, the fact that it doesn't talk about acceptability or tolerability in the regulation. Yeah, I think the only thing that would be comparable is the Fire Safety England regulations where it talks about best endeavours to undertake uh, flat entrance door checks. And again, it's this almost entirely new terminology best endeavors and it uh, and and there's been a lot of debate as to what what would quantify best endeavors what would that be what would that look like and i know there's certainly a lot of legal professionals working in the industry that have produced some guidance uh, uh, around this term but yeah you are right i mean health and safety one of the fun, sort of fundamental principles of health and safety is under this term as low as reasonably practicable the only piece of legislation that i can think of where this term doesn't apply is pure, the provision and use of work equipment recs. And that's just practicable. This reasonable is taken out of it. It's just if it's practicable to do it, then you must do it. Almost sort of suggesting that, well, this, you know, this is too serious now. We're talking about machinery. The severity is is almost undoubtedly when, you, when you're dealing with machinery likely to be very high. And I wonder if that's similar to sort of buildings where they're sort of saying, well, look, we've determined now the severity is very high. Therefore, we're going to take out this reasonableness. It's just, have you done it? Yes or no. And I, I, I don't know. How does that sound? It sort of feels that like we're moving towards that direction in the industry. I think so. And I think also the fact that a principal accountable person has to put their name to a safety case and say all reasonable steps have been taken and that you that may one day, you never know, be be questioned in a potentially in a court of law, I suppose. The follow-on question I, I think has to then inevitably be, okay, you took all reasonable steps, but you still thought it was okay. Why? If the risk was very serious, which is why I expect we're seeing in the likes of Bristol and Woking, I think it was, wasn't it? Buildings being decanted because clearly all reasonable steps have been taken and actually the people in charge are not willing to tolerate it. So they're saying, well, you can't actually live there. It is implicit, I would say. It's just a question of whether it would need, it needs to be made explicit, and I, and I don't really know that. 
I, I think this this sort of brings on to one of the other challenges, and I, and I promise we will get onto the digital bit soon because okay. that really interests me. But the you know one of the other challenges of this is this principal accountable person and accountable person. You know, I know when mm-hmm. uh, the 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 Hackett review was produced, there was this really this drive for the principal accountable person to be a named individual. Yeah, which would I guess be similar to what came out of the Nimrod review. It would be a named individual, not a corporate entity. It is, um, and, it, and it's signed by somebody. A person has to sign a letter. Absolutely. But where we are now, it's it's now a corporate entity. And, and in some cases, it's almost like a special purpose vehicle corporate entity where it's um, a, you know, a company without any employees as such. Yeah. And that, and that starts to get very gray, I would say. And I don't know, is that effective? Because if the regulation says that... Uh, if I think it describes it as oh, court uh, legal proceedings, or I'm not sure the actual term, criminal charges could be pressed against somebody. Can you press criminal charges against a corporate body? I'm not sure you. It, I think ultimately it's still going to be the the decision maker at the top. I would really hope that that person, and I and I admit I haven't seen it yet, but maybe that's just because of the role I'm playing within the sector, which is sort of external consultancy, is that I haven't yet seen a real involvement from the the very top. I've seen it in a couple of places, certainly, but it appears to me very much that it's at the building safety manager level where they really understand the risks. And yet I uh, I could probably start talking about compliance versus risk here, but it's almost as my sense is perhaps that I'm trying to couch my words slightly. If if we have a building safety case, therefore we are compliant. So we've ticked the box. And not really understanding that the building safety case is a mechanism for that accountable person to fully understand what the risks are and then make a statement as to whether they believe all reasonable steps have been taken to manage those risks. Yep, absolutely. Is that, that unfair? No, no, no. I, I, I think I agree with you. It's a very complicated subject, isn't it? And it's one of these things that I'm yeah. sure we'll put out. And if somebody sort of disagrees, we'll learn from it. But I think this is one yes. of the things about the conversation, the podcast, is that it's this sort of learning opportunity. And it's one of these things for me as to why I set this process up. It's like, you know, subject here in terms of uh, digital transformation, really, is what I look at. Is that, you know, subject that I think is really important to me and I want to learn more. So, you know, this is this this process. So, yeah, it, it is it is challenging. And, and I think, you know, even I need to be careful what I'm saying, because it's, it's so difficult in terms of it's not been tried and tested. But back to what you originally said, which was about the sort of corporate entity, you know, we do have uh, corporate manslaughter, you know, where a yeah. corporate body can be criminally prosecuted. But then again, we also have gross negligence manslaughter, where a, a director can be criminally prosecuted, but there has to be this sort of gross negligence element in there. I think that's right. I'm going to caveat this slightly that, that you know this isn't a Nibosh diploma learning session. So if you're no, and neither of us are legal experts, yeah, I caveat yeah, heavily. yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's let's put this in. I, I think I'll put that in at the very beginning that that you shouldn't follow this advice in terms of uh, by by the letter because well, I think as well the other thing is that it changes so often. Emily, I don't know how you found it that you know the guidance seems to change so often. I, I was very lucky. I spoke at London Build uh, a little while ago, and uh, the HSE were there as the, the the regulator and that that was quite interesting in that they've you know I, I i did have this conversation and said you know you you are making this very difficult for people <laughs> without trying to upset them well i think 
in their defense, the regulator is also evolving. I think people may have this image of, um, I'm trying to think of the film where there's a whole, there's a group of sort of masterminds sitting around this large round table in space and they're, you know, they, they, they've got their long, uh, like they're dictating what happens to the to the people below and creating, and then they are this sort of all all seeing, all being body. Whereas the reality is, I've never, I don't know where they operate from, but it's probably a lot of people working from home, working from a, a dingy office somewhere because it's underfunded, and they are doing their absolute best to deliver something that's useful within the timelines that the government has set for this groundbreaking change to the way the whole building industry is regulated. On the other hand, I agree there is perhaps some ambiguity in what's being pushed out. Lots of change all at the same time can be overwhelming. I'm seeing lots of things come out about fire safety regulations as well as all sort of encompassed within this whole building safety regulatory change of the landscape. And there's so much to take on board and it's so new to the industry that I'm just, yeah, I'm seeing a lot of confusion of, of, of what is actually required. Yeah, I yeah, I, I I agree with you. And I was very polite to the chap that I spoke to, by the way. Good. And it's not that I'm, yeah, <laughs> good. That's it. I want to give you a piece of my mind. No, it wasn't like that. It was just it was just that um, one of the things that he opened with was saying that they're doing, uh, they are looking to launch safety case training in the early part of next year. So they're looking right. to launch training on safety cases, how to, you know, put one together, a safety case report, what you need to do. And they're launching this training in uh, January or February. And I sat and thought, well, that's pretty late given that originally we should have had to have had this in place from October uh, this year. And now we've potentially got a deadline of April next year to to deliver the training in February, yet hold companies to account. And really the training hasn't been delivered. It's not that the, the it, yeah, the, I just got the feeling that the training hasn't been delivered until later because they're not actually quite sure what it should look like. <laughs> so that was that was where I sort of my... I don't know. That's where my feelings sort of lie on it. Is that they're not sure what it should look like. But it, but if you don't know what it should look like necessarily, then perhaps we shouldn't put it out quite so early. I don't know. That's my personal view, though. I've tiptoed around it. Have, have I tiptoed, or is that too much? I think we've tiptoed, and I would I would add to that that yeah, I I would have I have some concerns as well because so coming from the industry that we that we come from, we've done a lot of work on safety cases and have an understanding of what we would expect a safety case to look like. And to bring that into a very heavily compliance-based sector is not an easy thing to do. And so we are seeing people trying to interpret what a safety case means. Yes. And there's a lot of compliance. Well, I must have this survey and I must have this one and I must have this. And therefore, I'll be safe. BIM, for instance. Well, I've got, I've, I've had a BIM model made. So they're, you know. That that's my safety case. Like, well, mm, no, 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 it's not. It's a it's a three D model of your building, but doesn't make it any safer. It just tells you where things are. Yes. You still have to build the case around it. It, it might be a great. I mean, it, clearly they are very very useful and have their place, but it's not a safety case. And it's the same for a, a bow tie. Now we use bow tie as part of our evidence, as part of the hazard ID process, but it in and of itself is not a safety case. And I and I do worry, in a way, that the regulator is going to push something out and without having 
I mean, I'm sure they've not. Of course they're not. They're going to go and speak to other industries, aren't they? They're going to go and see, speak to oil and gas, nuclear, aviation, who know, live, breathe safety cases and look at what best practice is and then put something together. She says optimistically. There's my optimism bias, you see, coming in again. Yes. Full circle. Well, I think that's quite interesting what you said there about bow tie, you know, oil and gas and nuclear, because I worked in oil and gas previously. I've got an idea of what bow tie analysis is, but I've never done it in the UK. You know, I've never worked in real estate or buildings or property or NHS or any of the jobs that I've done where someone's gone, do you know, we need to sit down and do a, a bow tie analysis. I couldn't quite understand why bow tie was linked to safety case. I'm going to put that out and I don't want to seem naive here, but I just couldn't quite understand it. And I think that even that alone is going to be a whole new learning piece for a lot of safety professionals in the industry and a a lot of fire safety professionals as well. So I think the reason we would link the concept anyway of a bow tie with a safety case is because, so so do, do we need to talk about what bow tie is, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. If you can give a summary of it, I haven't touched it, like I say, since I worked in oil and gas years ago. So you could probably give a better summary of it than I could. Bowtie is purely a visualization of a risk. It the reason it's called a bowtie is because when you when you put it onto a piece of paper, onto a software or on a whiteboard, however you're uh, however it manifests, it can look a bit like a bow tie. Because if you imagine your knot in the middle is something called a top event. Um, so your top event is essentially the point at which you lose control over the hazard. And the hazard is something that you have to have. It's it's part of your normal business. So it, it might be landing an aeroplane. There are, if it's not controlled, it could go very, very wrong, but you have to do it if you want to run an airline. So your top event is the point at which you lose control over the hazard. And then if you just trying to picture this in your mind, if you look on your to the left-hand side of your top event, you would have a series of threats. And these are the causes, the things that may lead you to lose control over your, uh, or the release of the top event. And on the right-hand side, you can have a series of consequences. So for each hazard and top event combination, there's likely to be more than one threat and more than one consequence. So if we use the example of a zoo and this is one we always teach and it was quite interesting that recently a lion escaped from a circus in Italy I don't know if you heard about that no and no but very timely (laughs) it was very timely because there was there was in the news at the time uh, a lion having escaped from a cage so if you imagine my hazard is a dangerous wild animal but I need to have that dangerous wild animal because I'm running a zoo or a circus and it's going to attract customers my top event would be the loss of control of that. So the lion escaping out from its enclosure or its cage. The causes of that could be, well, there could be several. So somebody might not lock the cage properly. It may be that the enclosure is not sufficient to contain it. It may be that actually somebody gets in there when they shouldn't get in there. And then on the right-hand side, if you think, well, it's escaped, so what are the consequences? Well, it could attack a visitor. It could be that actually it's attacking one of my staff because you know they're meant to be near it it could be you could then look at other things maybe less safety related so loss of reputation you've got your the construct of the bow tie and then the reason that i really like a bow tie is because it's barrier based risk management and so what you're doing is you're putting barriers in place between the threat and the top event and then between the top event and the consequence and rather than trying to 
purely manage the outcome. So rather than saying, for instance, how do we prevent the spread of fire? How likely is it and how serious is it? And put it on a risk matrix. We actually break it down and look, why would a fire start? And then why would the fire spread? And then you put controls in place and you manage the controls themselves. So it's about assessment of the barrier reliability and the barrier adequacy. Yeah. The thing that I like most about it, actually, and and, and it starts to make sense, is that, well, so we've got our preventative side over here but then we've got our sort of control side over there which is the if it does happen if the worst should happen you know or if this event takes place what mitigating factors have we got in place whereas a traditional risk assessment i guess would be very preventative yes and also a traditional risk assessment when it's presented have you ever looked at an excel spreadsheet that is describes the risk describes the barriers you or the controls or mitigations, whatever you want to call them, in place, then gives you a red, amber, green. And then it's like, oh, post-mitigation or post, uh, we're going to do something else. We'll put some more controls in place. And actually the residual risk is red, amber, green. And it, it's, a, it's really interesting when you present a risk register table to somebody. You know, you can see their eyes glazing over and they're trying to concentrate. And there's a whole list of controls that might be a process, it might be a policy, but really are they genuinely adequate? Are they going to deal with the scenario that you're talking about in the way that you'd hope they would? If that risk is then presented visually in a bow tie, it's really quite remarkable how people interact with it because they can see the potential accident pathway, they can see the controls that are in place, and then you can ask questions about it. Why is that red? Why do you not think that's adequate? Or okay, look at that barrier. And it's amazing the number of times you go into a workshop and people go, yeah, but we don't actually do that. We haven't got that in place. And other people in the room are like, really? Oh, but I thought we did that. Ah, we did it on that building, but we don't do it on this building. You know, that sort of thing. So as much as the output, which is the bow ties, the process to get there is also really valuable because you're getting all the people in a room to carry out that risk assessment. I mean, I find them just game-changing in that respect, really. I absolutely agree. I, I honestly, you've completely convinced me genuinely. Oh, really? Well, because I think about all the risk assessments that I've seen and, you know, some of them are, uh, you know, the, the, yeah, I, I, I don't want to sound negative about it, but some some can go into sort of quite trivial levels of detail and they sort of sometimes miss the big picture. You know, I don't, I, I don't how, how many risk assessments have I seen for use of tools and the first control measure is PPE, you know, and it's like, yeah. all right, if that's all we're dealing with, you know, it's, I'm going to use um, an angle what, grinder what or a chainsaw. And, you know. so, so we used to joke, I mean, hilarious safety joke coming up, but it would say PPE and then we'd write life jacket. You know, well, you have to describe what it is, how's the injury going to be caused and then have the correct, like, is the PPE, is it safety goggles, is it chainsaw boots, you've mentioned chainsaw, or is it a life jacket because actually you're going over some cold water in your helicopter. So it's trying yes. to be and it's trying to be more specific and understand how effective is that really against the thing that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. So we, you talked very briefly you said about linking boats analysis to the safety case. So what we find is we do a lot in defense aviation they use 
bow tie is sort of ac across the whole of defense aviation domain is bow tie is the methodology of choice for managing risks. They also have safety cases. So the two things are separate, but clearly shake hands at some point. And when there is a there is a tech or sort of a bit of a skill to a bow tie in that a barrier should be able to stop the threat on its own, in completely independently, it should be effective at preventing the threat from either you either eliminating the threat, so you might remove gas completely, let's say if we're talking about gas, or you might be able to prevent the gas causing a fire in the building. What we see a lot of is barriers that say something like training. In our in my case, aircrew training. And actually, aircrew is, or, or there's a policy. Well, a policy or an audit or some activity that you take, that you do, is not going to stop the building from falling down by itself, but it will contribute to the quality of a barrier that will. So if your barrier was an individual, so you think of detect, decide, act. So an individual detects there's a problem, they decide what to do, and then they act. If that person is trained and competent to do those three things, they are evidently going to do that better than if they're not. So in your safety case, you may argue that your people are competent and trained to a certain standard. That part of your safety case in our digital tool, we can physically, well, I say physically, as in you can connect two bits of the software together. So you can say, well, this barrier over here where we require people to be competent connects to this part of the safety case over here where we're arguing with the evidence that they are indeed competent. So do you see how the two might overlap? Yes. Yeah. So if you, for instance, you had a, okay, physical barriers. So fire doors, you know, our, the fire door is rated to the to the right amount of time. You know, it's a 60 minutes, a 30 minute fire door. So the fire door is going to stop that fire spreading through the, out of the compartment of origin for the time amount of, let's say, 60 minutes. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, the safety case is going to argue the fact that those fire doors are checked. So we know it's a 60-minute fire door. The safety case is going to argue that the self-closers work, that it's fitted correctly, there's not big gaps around the fire door, that an occupant hasn't, I don't know, actually replaced it with their own beautiful plastic front door because you have mechanisms in place. But on your boat high, the thing that is going to stop a let's say if your top event was a fire in a single compartment and then your consequence was spread of fire laterally across multiple compartments, the barrier is the door. Yes. And then all of the management aspects that go with that form your safety case. Very well explained. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. So so we've our top event is is fire. And well, it would probably you have to just define the fire. So I would tend to say because fire where sort of uh, bound okay, yeah, yeah. So, so like, like a fire in a single compartment, which is not it's not a desired event clearly, but it is also something that happens in high rise buildings and is usually managed. Yes, okay. So you'd expect that to happen on occasion, wouldn't you? Yes, yeah, that makes sense. So fire in an individual apartment, and then we yeah. we we have our uh, on on the left hand side. So that would be our top top line event. And then on the left-hand side, we've got all of the preventative measures that are in place. Say, for example, one could be uh, pat testing of electronic appliances within the apartment. And on the right-hand side, we've got if the fire happens, what would prevent that fire from spreading? So we've got, say, fire door. Or, you know, you could say smoke detection. And then all of these controls that we list in the bow tie, we need to pull those out, put them in a safety case, and then 
effectively prove that they work. Absolutely. Emily, yeah. you've just made it very, very simple. I mean, it's... Uh... <laughs> so how does uh, how does Risk Flag help with that then? Let's get on to the, you know, your software system, your product and the, the you know, the digital solution here. We started writing safety cases quite a few years ago in defense aviation. And we would write them using Excel, in Word, and issue a, a report. The whole of the sector was the the requirement was actually not to have a report it was to have a safety case and a safety case regime and this is again where it sort of comes back to the the guidance from the regulator being very clear on what they mean because a report is purely a download from the safety case itself a snapshot at that moment in time and we were discovering that it's very hard to keep your safety case up to date, to keep it live and as an effective risk management tool, which is what it should be. It shouldn't just be, I would say, a regulatory burden, a box ticking exercise. It, it can be, if done properly, it can actually be a really valuable risk management tool. But to do that just using an Excel sheet, we were starting to find really tricky. And so we ourselves developed this system that we 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 were then using and it became apparent that it was it was pretty good it was it was really useful because you're essentially breaking each of the elements down so we use a, a claim argument evidence structure and so for each of your you'd have a top level claim so in this case that might be that the risk the building safety risks within um pete's tower are managed or all reasonable steps have been taken to reduce the risk, building safety risks in Pete's building. Let's say that's your your claim. So you're kind of articulating your end state, your desired goal. So if I'm saying all building safety risks are managed, well, okay, how have I done that? So I would break that down into another series of claims and I'd say, well, the risk of the spread of fire, because that's specifically what the building regulator is asking for, the risk of structural failure and probably I'd say something about my safety management system, that that exists and it, you know, it's like a wrapper around everything. That's how I manage my safety. So those are some more claims. And then each one of those I'd break down. So let's if we focused on fire, for instance, you'd say, well, OK, so if I'm saying that the risk of spread of fire has been mitigated, how have I done that? Well, and, and then this is where you would go back to your bow tie and you look at it and you look at each of your threats or your causes and say, well, how am I, how's a fire even going to start? So you might say, well, we've, you know, the, the electric fire from electrics, we've, we've dealt with that fire from gas, fire from external influences, whatever those things are as your claims. But then you have to it sort of goes down these layers and layers and you can see why this then becomes very difficult if you're doing it just in a sort of a static word document because then for each of those elements you have an argument so if we were talking about um spread of fire around the envelope of the building you might say my claim is that you know the envelope of calling it the envelope of the building is that i don't know you have to excuse my terminology not being a building safety person but no, that's fine i know what you mean so so you might say well why and then then you start saying because because the insulation is non-combustible because the cladding is non-combustible. And then you have your evidence to prove that your cladding is made of a non-combustible material. To prove you might have a picture of the way it's, uh, or like a design drawing to show that there are not cavities where uh, um, the fire could travel or that there are cavity barriers in place and that those cavity barriers are effective. So you then have your evidence and our system will either store your evidence or link out to your own evidential database. 
And each of those subclaims can be connected within the system to your bow tie. So you can see which barriers are affected by each of your subclaims. Now, one thing that the regulator is saying, which I applaud them for, is that whilst the regulations in force on the 1st of April, they understand that not everything will have been done or fixed by the 1st of April, but that it is incumbent upon the organisation to at least understand the risks. And so what we've done is we've said you could score the safety case, each of your subclaims, to say, well, where am I now? Do I have sufficient evidence to back up the arguments that I'm making? And actually, are those arguments good enough to support the claim that I'm making. So it's a, it is a subjective assessment and requires a little bit of thought. Now, it might be that actually I either don't have the right evidence or at the moment, mm, it you know, something's a bit sketchy going on here. So we have the, created a, a workflow space where tasks can be allocated, like a project managed for, I don't know, if you're remediating some cladding, for instance. So you can explain to the regulator we understand that there's a, a gap here. This is what we're doing about it. This is when we're doing it. And this is how we're managing. The most important thing I'd say is this is how we're managing the risks in the interim. And then you say, you know, we're going to be green by, I don't know, June 2024. So that at least you're articulating to the regulator that you have a plan in place. You are, you've understood the risk, that it's safe to carry on as you are for now, but that things will improve. And then from that, you can export a report, which means you can export it at any time. And anything that you are changing is changed in one place. So version control is no longer an issue. Everybody can collaborate on the safety case. You can audit who's looked at it. You can see what changes they've made. And so it's a system essentially. And then you you export your report when it's asked for. Yeah, that that makes yeah, honestly, that makes perfect sense. And I, I think there is so much confusion around safety cases, you know, from what I've seen in the industry and from conversations that I've had with other professionals. I'm I'm not entirely sure that the that the regulators helped. I'm gonna be honest. <laughs> I wanna be careful what I say because I don't want to make the most controversial podcast in, you know, safety history. But I just I, I don't think the regulators help with this confusion. But the way that you've explained it just makes it so much simpler. Because I think what a lot of people are doing is they're going, Well, I need a safety case report, and they're paying consultants in the industry an awful lot of money to come out and produce a safety case report. Mm-hmm. Well, that safety mm-hmm. case report is only live on that day really just a snapshot in time so how are we gonna you know maintain the system how are we gonna uh, effectively evidence the safety case not the report itself does that make sense i would absolutely agree i i mean two things that just came out of what you just said one is i was talking to somebody recently who have they have a building that has some cladding that they're in the process of remediating so this is a the, the fire strategy or the uh, evacuation strategy is stay put. However, whilst they're remediating and whilst they understand the risks, the elevated risk associated with the cladding, they have implemented a waking watch and a building-wide alarm system. And the strategy is uh, simultaneous evacuation. Wow. When that building has been remediated, it will go back to a stay put strategy. So they were talking about, well, if we have a report written today, it's going to evidence all the claims that relate to a simultaneous evacuation strategy. Now, they're hoping that will be done in, I don't know, between six months and a year's time, it will revert to a stay put strategy, in which case 
all the best APK's report will will be complete nonsense because it will relate to a building that's got an evacuation strategy that is different. And so that's why they came to us thinking, well, you can help because actually we would just have to change those claims and we just manage it in the system. And it also, the other thing that made me think was um, the way we would do it is to, to you starting with starting with your claims and your goal. Because I think this is the other thing the regulator is not perhaps or could perhaps give some better guidance about is that a safety case, it has to persuade the regulator that you have met the intent of the regulation. It's not saying that the, the regulator is not going to say, yes, your building's safe. Here's a big tick. Yes, agreed. It's, it's going to say you have met the intent of the regulation. And people are asking for a template. They're never going to give a template because there's so, so many variations on what it could look like because it depends on how you argue your case, a bit like a case in a law court. And so your evidence, you can be a little bit uh, creative, I think, with the evidence as long as it is persuasive. And what concerns me is that because the guidance is not perhaps as as clear as it might be, that there are people who are capitalising on that. So I was talking to an organisation the other day that has brand new builds. And this organisation designed, built, manages, they they haven't touched another organisation. And yet the consultants who've been brought into their safety cases are telling them, now you might disagree with me here, but they're telling them they need a forensic intrusive survey on every single building. And I said, why? And they said, well, that's because the consultant's telling them that's what the regulator will ask for. Wow. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm seeing this an awful lot and I'm, I'm, yeah, I am trying not to be too controversial with the podcast, but there's an awful lot of, there's an awful lot of golden thread systems out there software systems for golden thread and we're not actually entirely sure how that's going to look yet not entirely um i i don't know i don't know it's let's put it this way it's making a lot of people a lot of money and i understand what dame judith hackett is is talking about or demanding in terms of the golden thread because the same thing happened with the nimrod they trawl back through all the paperwork to say well who made that decision when was it decided to not fit a collision warning system when was it decided to not fit fire suppressant into the bombays for instance yes and there's no record of those decisions but i would also argue that the golden thread is about who interacted with your safety case it's not simply a list of reports it's who wrote it who reviewed it? And the great thing about our system is that you can see who's been involved. So if I was a principal accountable person, I would be digging into that safety case. I mean, I'm obviously being very naive because I imagine these are very busy people, but I'd want to be looking at it. And so if you can say, I was aware of this, our, that our principal accountable person's all over it, you know, they're, they're involved in the decision making, that is also, I would argue, part of the golden thread. It's not just about a compliance, uh, like a data storage solution for pieces of information. Yes. No. I mean, I think uh, I I think the principal accountable persons. Well, you know, uh, exact. Let's say exec directors. I think the exec directors of a lot of the companies that uh, I've interacted with are incredibly interested in this. They're incredibly interested, incredibly concerned, and they. In all cases, genuinely, they they all want to get it right. I think where the confusion comes is what does get it right look like? And at the moment, I think you you have absolutely hit the nail on the head. A lot of people are just saying, "Well, I 
I buy a report, like an FRA. I buy a report. Consultant comes in, I pay the money, and they produce a safety case report. And then I give that to the regulator 18 months down the road. And the, you know, I think where the, where the, where the digital side for me comes in is that when we look at the safety case, there's an awful lot of data and information that we have to manage now. And that data has to have credibility. You know, if, if someone digs into it, it, it has to have credibility. In, in a basic sense, I almost like version control, some control, some competence over who's produced it. You know, I don't think Excel spreadsheets are, are going to cut it anymore. And, and I think this is where I think this is where focus needs to be. Not necessarily on just producing a report. It's actually getting the safety case right in the first place. And I think this is where risk flag helps because it really helps to identify, you know, where those claims are and where those arguments are. And and that's what we're seeing with with organizations that are using it, is that their thinking has really evolved. I was talking to somebody earlier today, in fact, and it was just a pleasure to speak to him because he was saying he was saying, Emily, it's just not it's not just about compliance. It's about it's not about whether I've ticked a box. It's about whether the way it's set up in this particular building is going to contribute to the spread of fire. And I was like, Yes. <laughs> Good. Well done. You know, so <laughs> it's um it was really it was great to hear. And what happens when if you provide people with that system to interact with that's structured in such a way that it is almost prompting them to ask those questions and to challenge in that way, that the thinking and the, the culture itself will evolve. It's, it's a big, big ask to say to people, you've got to, you've got to think in a completely different way. So up to this point, it's my understanding is it's been compliance-based. So I've, I've been listening to the Grenfell Tower Inquiry podcast, which is harrowing, and I have shouted at it on many times because I think, why did you just not ask? But is it safe? They just there. There was not the concept in in a lot of the organisations I think that were involved. There was a uh, and 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 I can see absolutely. I'm not. I'm not. Um, uh, I'm not saying that people were wrong to to not ask that, but as in. This absolute trust in, well, here's a certificate, therefore it's fine. And when we're talking about aviation safety, we always have to ask about context because this material might be fine, but is it fine in the context in which I'm going to use it? So if you think back to, do you know the Comet aircraft, the de Havilland Comet? I've heard of this. They had a very, they had a very nasty accident rate in the, it was one, of, it was the first passenger aircraft built by a British company, you know, genius of British engineering, and it was really successful. Then as it was gradually used, so flights became longer, altitudes became greater, the constant differential pressure or the changes in pressure because they were flying higher, and then gradually these things couldn't cope with it and they didn't understand why. And so they would, um, I think it was two or three just exploded in midair. Eventually, they put the aircraft, they put it underwater to try and simulate the pressure on the aircraft. And it turned out that this thing, uh, they had square windows and the, 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 the corners couldn't, and the rivets in the windows couldn't cope with the pressure. So they were cracking in the corners of the square windows. And it was all because of the, the increased pressure, physical pressure on the aircraft from... Um, flying at higher altitudes. 
And they changed the context. So it was designed and it was safe, but they changed the context and they hadn't established that it was safe to do it in that context. And I think that's what risk management does where compliance doesn't. It's a whole new realm for for the industry to be getting into. So I just, I want to make sure that we talk about risk flag enough, Emily, because, but by the way, I am just astounded at your level of knowledge on uh, the Building Safety Act and and fire safety. You've been very kind enough to let me uh, tinker around with the risk flag system. I absolutely love it. When you explain about bow tie analysis as well, and your team do training on bow tie analysis, don't you? That's something that you offer, isn't it, as a company, risk flag? We do. So we'll facilitate a workshop. We don't profess to be experts in building safety. We might have accumulated some knowledge, but what we tend to do is get the subject matter experts in the room. And then I think the guidance that came out from the regulator, there was some guidance about safety cases in on the 18th of October. And one of them was about has idea and facilitation. And it's it does really make a difference if you've got somebody in the room who understands the process. I actually brought Bowtie into defense aviation. It was a a job I was given, but then a job I sort of picked up and ran with for two years. And I worked with a company that we did bow ties and we've subsequently have done bow ties in, you mentioned the NHS actually earlier. We did one, I did some work with them, with AstraZeneca, with cruise ships, with maritime lots in aviation. So I have a really broad understanding of what a bow tie should look like. Yes. And that helps to challenge people to get the best information out of them to put into a bow tie. So yeah, it, it does help actually if you've got the time and the resources to throw at getting a, f- a facilitator in the room. It does help. Absolutely. And, and I know we've talked about the claim argument evidence, so the sort of structure of the safety case and how risk flag helps to facilitate that. But I think it's important to note that risk flag doesn't store the evidence, does it? Uh, but interestingly, we are currently working on a solution where you could store documents because what we're finding is that if it's a very static document, so let's say you've had a type 4 fire risk assessment, you're unlikely to be changing that every week, Yes, I would guess, or, or a structural survey. So actually those documents could be stored in our system because one thing the regulator hasn't yet done, and lots of people are struggling with this or finding this challenge, is how do they want the evidence? So I went, I sat and joined a webinar that the, the regulator ran and I asked them and they said they didn't want logins and usernames to people's systems. And quite rightly, organizations are concerned about giving a login because of GDPR and data, all sorts of data protection issues. Then I said, well, would you accept maybe a zip file with the report? And they they didn't really have an answer to that. They said they would go and look at it. So we thought actually if there's if as much of the information as possible could be stored in the system, this the sort of static stuff, then that would make people's lives a bit easier. The challenge, and we are working with another organization to build an API so that we can interact a lot more collaboratively with their existing systems rather than it just being a URL. But until the regulator defines how they want the evidence presented to them, then I'm not sure we're going to, anybody's going to have the, the, you know, the ideal solution in terms of data storage. Absolutely, it's but it's, it's sort of nice to know that the, you know that your fingers on the pulse with it, really, and that you, you know that the system is is there and adaptable and ready to develop as required. Well, that's it. And as soon as the regulator gives some guidance, then we're you know we're all set. We've got lots of ideas about what we could do, but we don't want to go off down the wrong route for them to say no, 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 don't like that. We want to do it this way. We're, we're trying to get in, trying to get some feedback from them actually at the moment about how that would look. 
be honest, I'm not sure they know themselves. It's not. I don't think they're withholding. I just don't no. think they've. I mean, if you look at the registration, building registration. I mean, that was not that straightforward. No, I don't think. No, it was. Uh, it was. Um, I noticed there was a lot of sort of chatter on LinkedIn about the building registration process and you know the key building information mm. and then when people were submitting it it all went very quiet as if no one wanted to quite say the position that they were in but I think it was very challenging for everybody involved. And I think the regulator is slightly hostage to the systems that have been set up for it or set up by it. I don't I don't know what systems they're or who's managing those things but you know they're going to have to deal with a huge amount of data very quickly. Yes, I'm, I, and I, so yeah, I'm really not sure that they're going to be geared up for that. To be honest, just because the sheer quantity of information that's going to come in is, it yeah. must be utterly overwhelming. Basically, the language that they use just wasn't very clear, and it caused a lot of ambiguity. And then, of course, if you have ambiguity around things, just like if you were to put out a survey and not be clear on the questions you know, the data, you know, isn't going to tell you that much. So the, I, I think then, so the thing that I, I wanted to talk about, because this is the thing that I really liked about risk flag, and I think I mentioned it to you when we spoke, but um, I can obviously see the, you know, the benefit of the way it's set up for the claim argument evidence. That makes perfect sense. But the bit for me was the bit that we keep speaking about of the individuals are selling safety cases, this process that, well, I need a safety case report producing. And that, for you is probably the easiest bit of risk flag because it's the bit where you just click a button and it just produces a safety case report. It's there so easy and it's always live. The thing that I like about that is it is it breaks the sections down. If I take something, say, safety management system, you know, a safety case report will probably have to provide something about the safety management system. But your safety management system doesn't change that often. You know, it's, it's of course, reviewed, but, you know, the process is, is probably fairly static, like you said. So if I have to produce 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 safety cases, that, it's not like I'm sitting there cut copying and pasting that into a Word document or single report or Excel. Does, does that make sense? Yes, it does. And it means that, as I said, I think before about version control, one person could manage the safety management system and the output that goes into a report because it just ripples across every single building that you've got in the system if it's at the organizational level. And what is also, I think, really great about the system is you can have elements of your safety management system because I think what, so just winding back slightly, no, what the ahead. regulator would hope to see is not just that you have a generic safety management system, I mean, clearly elements of it are going to be quite high level about roles, responsibilities, policies, processes. They are going to want to see evidence that that applies to the particular building, to Peter's Tower, let's say. Yes. So within the system, you could have your organizational level elements of the safety management system. And then at the building level, structure your reports in the way that it demonstrates that you apply that safety management system in the specific context of this building. Yes. And I think that will be really powerful to the regulator rather than just receiving a you know reams of dare I say just sort of blurb fluff saying we do this and we do that and we aren't we great at this. It's more tangible than that. It's saying we do this and here is here is us doing it on this particular building. Yeah. I mean, look, you talked before. Which would be more convincing. You know, say, say, for instance, you take a, a large social housing provider. 
you know, they could have a lot of these to produce. You know, we could be talking nearly a hundred, dare I say it. I mean, I'm more. Uh, go on. I mean, yeah, some are big numbers. 180. Really? Yeah. So, so the very fact there's a software system out there that can help you take all of those sort of standardized organizational sections of a safety case report that you would see and then duplicate those across you know effectively 150 tall buildings then you, then you have you know other sections which might apply to vast sections of those buildings i.e. depending on the time they were constructed or depending on the i don't know the managing agents that are in place or depending on the the m&e processes in place and then you're going to when you get down to the very fine detail, you're going to have elements that are very specific. But being able to duplicate all of those other elements, that must be a huge benefit well, it, uh, administratively and in terms of resource and time. Absolutely. It reduces that burden on very strapped building safety teams. They don't have lots of people. There, there aren't the resources to manage this 190 times 100 or even 20 times if you've got yes. 20 buildings it's still it's still a burden so we designed it to be as user friendly as possible which yes. means that there's not the training burden one person can learn how to use it they can teach everybody else how to do it and what we've just created actually is a templating system whereby you can create your let's say large panel system as a template of your claims your and your arguments and then you duplicate your you know you create another copy from the template yes, let's say yes and, and the beauty of that is the two safety cases or the safety case you're then designing based on that template knows it's linked to the template now we were quite surprised when the regulator declared that building safety risks uh, they define what they were in the industries that we've come from you'd expect the regulator to say, you must tell us what your building safety risks are, whereas they have said building safety risks are only the spread of fire and structural failure, which is quite an interesting approach. Yes. I wouldn't be surprised if at some point they turn around and say, oh, do you know what? Actually, water safety, yeah, absolutely. Uh, mole, yeah. I don't know, I'm trying to think of some others, but there there are other risks because clearly you know, we've seen ho horrible stories about some things to do with mold and maybe legionella in a building so using the template system you could just add a subclaim and it will say do you want this to apply to all of the the subsequent you know the, the the safety cases that are linked to this template yes please so you can then retrospectively add that in and it will just ripple it across and and tell whoever's managing that safety case look there's a there's a new thing in here you need to fill this in and equally if you decided i don't know one of your subclaims you didn't like the way you worded it or you wanted to edit it in some way you could just change it in the template and it makes that it ripples that change across every single linked safety case so we're just really conscious of the limited amount of time that organizations have to do this because in reality, they're supposed to be compliant by the 1st of April. Now, I know that there's going to be huge gaps in the data, not necessarily through want of trying, but because of the lack of resources in the whole across the whole sector. Yes. I mean, I just don't think there are enough surveyors. There aren't enough fire risk assessors to actually cope with the burden of work. But at least if you've got something in place that you could demonstrate to the regulator, look, this is how far we've got. We either we've at least identified the gaps. Um, so we're, we're working very hard to create something that is as efficient, user-friendly, time-saving, and it potentially means you're not going to have to hire that extra person and you know, then all the things that go with managing an individual 
not least the cost. Yeah, so that's kind of what we're aiming at, really. It's whether you've got three buildings, actually people are finding really powerful the fact that the whole team can interact and collaborate and they can see who's done what when and the PAP can dive into it. It's as equally useful to them as it is to somebody with 150 buildings, is, is what we're finding. I, I think one of the other things that people are missing when they start with the safety case report it's almost like they're starting at the end because the safety case report will need to be maintained and i think the question Mm. that i have is if i have someone just produce me a safety case report on word as in just one word document and then you multiply that by 180 how do i maintain those you know if you think about what goes into a safety case report even a simple organizational structure change in terms of, you know, someone else has been promoted within the company, you know, obviously at a high level in terms of, you know, they would be a responsible person or something like that. You've now just got to sit and edit 150 (laughs) documents. It just seems ludicrous to me to try and approach this with anything but a digital solution if you're a large organisation. I think this is where I would hope the regulator over time will evolve. And especially, I mean, the rumours on the street are they might in a few years' time apply this to buildings of 11 metres. Can you imagine how, I just can't even bear to think about how many buildings that's going to be. And I think they can't seriously be asking. I mean, at the moment, they're asking for, what is it, 13,000, something like that, buildings, reports. They want 13,000 reports that are, are going to all be different. What I'd really hope is that in the longer term, so for instance, with risk flag, we could give the regulator a read-only, limited time login. They could then just go in and have a look and they could see what that organisation is up to. Now, I mean, that is being really transparent and people might be very uncomfortable with that. But ultimately, that is what the regulator is asking for when they ask for the report. They do want to see warts and all. Maybe in a few years' time, a digital solution actually facilitates that what greater transparency within the industry and that people aren't afraid to you know open the the curtains and show everything that they uh to the regulator i think you know ultimately if there is a a defect on a life safety system fire safety system and that will obviously extend at some point as you rightly say to something like legionella then it has to be reported anyway you know, so if there's a defect on a building in London, on a fire safety system, it's out for more than 24 hours or it has to be reported to LFB. So there really mm. should be no place to hide. And just circling back to what you said about Legionella or other building safety, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I keep saying this is why it's called the Building Safety Act, and not, you know, uh, another piece of fire safety legislation, because it, the act can be amended at any point by the Secretary of State to include anything. So what if we if we were to have, you know, a Legionella outbreak as such, which we do get, then I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, a pen come out and it change and it say, OK, well, for any buildings with cooling towers, we want you to put that in the safety case now. Yeah. What are the risks? You know, what are the risks of getting this wrong? Well, if I get it wrong, I'm not going to have met the intent of the regulation. There could be some kind of enforcement action on me. Yes. If I get it wrong and I get it wrong across 150 safety cases, oh my goodness, what is the administrative burden of trying to rectify that? Yes. It's unlikely. So we've tried to de-risk it as much as possible because ultimately we're, we're providing a platform to make life easier. We're not telling you what has to go into your safety case, but we're structuring it in such a way. And we've had feedback from the regulator 
saying we really like this you know caveat caveat we don't endorse a commercial product but this is really good because they like the format they like the logical structured format it holds their hand through the assessment so if you think of the building assessment certificate the assessor if they've got to read i don't know 100 pages of prose and then at the end determine whether they think all reasonable steps have been taken that's not an easy prospect and that's going to be an expensive prospect for the person who's submitting the report yes. at 144 pounds an hour it's about weighing up those risks and deciding well can i deal with another software platform which is actually cloud based and really easy to use against all my building safety team leaving because they're so bored of trying to manage 100 safety cases in a word report which is impossible and becoming very frustrated and then submitting it to the regulator who says mm, try again emily honestly it's been such a pleasure to speak to you i, I well, genuinely you yeah i really appreciate you coming onto the podcast and giving up your time this afternoon where where's the easiest place for someone to find you if someone's listening to this and they think I need risk flag. They can go onto LinkedIn. You can email me info at riskflag.com. You can go onto our website, riskflag.com. And we'd be only too happy to talk to you. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Thanks, okay. Emily. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. One of the things I really took away from that interview, I was expecting to get a lot of information about risk flag and about building safety cases. What I hadn't anticipated was how much I would learn about the Building Safety Act, about fire safety and all of the other fire safety changes that have come in. It is clear that Emily absolutely lives and breathes this subject and her knowledge was, to be honest, some of the, the the best I've heard on this topic. I think I have to say I look at safety case reports in a completely different way to most. And I recognize that most organizations that are having to produce a safety case report are probably having to produce more than one. And as Emily said, there are some organizations out there with 180 HRBs. And this is just an absolutely monumental challenge. And yet, Emily and Risk Flag, really the only people that I've seen that are approaching this from a, a project point of view. So, you know, the way I look at the safety case reports is if we look at car manufacturing prior to Henry Ford, you know, we were producing each car individually. And I, I think that's how a lot of organizations are approaching the safety case report. But with risk flag, you know, we do take the the Model T Ford approach where it's break the process down into each individual component in order to improve the efficiency of the overall project. So with risk flag, I can really see the benefits in having a, a truly scalable system. And the other thing with Risk Flag that I was impressed at is that it's it's a live document. So if you had an organization that had 180 building safety case reports, and I think I said in the episode, you know, even a small change, such as a change within the structure of the organization, you know, if that's documented in your uh, safety management system of the report, you're going to have to change that. And if all you've got is a Word document multiplied by 180 times, someone's going to have to sit there and change 180 Word documents. And then, you know, I've seen the complexity of some of these reports and how much information goes in them. There could be change after change after change to make just to keep them, well, anywhere near up to date. And I think that's the challenge for me is that organizations are going to have to have all of these safety case reports in place for April uh, 2024, ready to go. But really, the regulator has got, you know, the next four years, 
five years to request them. This could be a moving goalpost. So what you pay an awful lot of money to have produced today, it may be completely irrelevant in a couple of months' time, even more so in in a year, two years, four years' time when it's finally requested. And so I think with a system like RiskFlag, you know, you really do have a system that can allow you to not only build a safety case report, but actually just keep it up to date. And you you know that when you need it, it's it's there, it's accessible, and it just seems much more efficient. If you enjoyed this episode, then please like and subscribe. It really does make a difference to the show. Thank you so much, and see you in the next episode. <laughs>